evening. My name is uh, Fawaz Jirjas, and uh, I teach Middle Eastern politics and international relations here at the LSE. And really, it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce my colleague, uh, John Shellcraft, uh, tonight. Uh, John is a reader in the history and politics of empire and imperialism in the government uh, department, in the Department of Government at the LSC. Um, and you know what? Uh, long before uh, the, the so-called term uh, people's power in the Middle East became popular uh, in the West, uh, John really was working on people's power. Uh, social movements, uh, migrant workers, uh, labor movements, uh, not only in the 20th century, but from the 18th century uh, uh, to the 20th century. And in particular, he worked on uh, uh, post-colonial approaches uh, to the study uh, and the writing uh, of history. I would like to mention uh, two books in particular uh, by John. Uh, his most recent book is Invisible Cage, uh, Syrian Migrant Workers in Lebanon, published by Stanford University in two 2009. And this is the history, as you all know, uh, of, of the bloody history of Syrian migrant workers in Lebanon, which is really invisible, invincible uh, cage indeed. And the uh, forthcoming book by John, it's called uh, Popular Politics in the Making uh, of the Modern Middle East. And this will be published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, is it next year or the year after? Oh, it'll take but two or three years, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Popular Politics in the Making of the Modern Middle East. Uh, explores the role of consent and hegemony, uh, social protest movements, alternative approaches and narratives to the study of social movements, uh, and of course alternative programs of political, moral, and intellectual leadership uh, and institutional disruption. Truly, and I'm not exaggerating, if there is one person uh, today uh, qualified to speak about the popular uprisings in the Arab world, particularly social movements in the world, not just uh, in the UK, it is uh, John Chalcraft. Please, um, I mean, uh, let's welcome John uh, tonight. Uh, well, thank you very much, Fawaz. That's a very, very nice, uh, far too flattering introduction, but appreciated. So, uh, there are major dramas going on in the Middle East. Uh, mass protests have been joined in uh, at least half the countries of the Arab League. Long-standing and well-fortified dictators have been toppled. Other dictators uh, in uh, Syria, Yemen, Bahrain and elsewhere have repressed uprisings with considerable ferocity. Others have made material concessions to domestic populations while sending troops to crush uprisings uh, in neighboring powers, i.e. Saudi Arabia. The United Nations has got involved, so has the US, Britain, France, and NATO. There's a military junta in power in Egypt now trying to seize and consolidate its power. And in Egypt, and in Tunisia, there's uh, a process of uh, a significant process towards the establishment of a democratic framework of multi-party elections. And meanwhile, Israel is warmongering against Iran. And if this wasn't enough, there's a major crisis in the global financial architecture. So it's not surprising that scholars, uh, pundits, activists, and others are scrambling to try and understand what's going on. 
And what I want to do in this lecture is zero in on the role of mass uh, protests, demonstrations, strikes, direct crowd actions, otherwise known as riots, and uprisings in the chain of events. Uh, uprisings usefully defined by Leon Trotsky back in the 1930s, who knew a thing or two about uprisings. He spoke of them as those crucial moments when the old order becomes no longer endurable to the masses. They break over the barriers, excluding them from the political arena. They sweep aside their traditional representatives and create by their own interference the initial groundwork for a new regime. The question I wanted to pose, and in special reference to Egypt tonight, is who was involved in these mass protests? And I'm thinking above all of January and February 2011. What exactly did those protests achieve? And what did they not achieve? And what can we say was distinctive about them? And I'm going to do this within the framework of a, a, a historiographical agenda that I'm pushing called uh, post-colonial history from below. So uh, I'll say something about the scholarly context. I'll say something about what I mean by post-colonial history from below. And then I'll, I'll get on with my main arguments. Uh, and the, the scholarly context is, uh, is promising, I want to suggest, because this time around, uh, the revolution really has been televised. And it's not just been televised, but it's been WikiLeaked, it's been Al Jazeera, it's been Facebooked, it's been uh, Al Jazeera. Uh, and uh, it's been Twittered, it's been YouTubed, it's been blogged, uh, and everything else. And that's made for a vast contemporary archive, perhaps the like of which has never been seen before in regards to a revolutionary process. We have more sources to tackle this than we ever had before. And there's a pretty promising, uh, I mean, it's too early, of course, for serious academic research, but there's a, a, a raft of books coming into uh, being in press or have already been published that have uh, important and useful things to say and that are promising uh, for reasons I'll mention. There's, I mean, we have in English, there's Charles Tripp's book published with CUP coming out called The Politics of Resistance uh, in, the, in the Middle East. There's, there's Filiou's book, it's already out, called The Arab Revolution, Ten Lessons from the Uprising. Galel Amin, who's a famous Egyptian economist who has a PhD from LSE from the 1960s, uh, has a book, Masr wal Masriin, uh, for Egypt and the Egyptians in the time of Mubarak. There's other stuff. There's Benjamin Storer in French has already got a book out, the, 19, the Arab 89. There are these, uh, I mean, it's invidious to pick out particular websites, but uh, jadalia.com and, and Merip both have fantastic, sophisticated, diverse analysis by Arabic speakers, non-Arabic speakers, and others. There's a book that was published recently, just as the uprisings were, were, were unfolding, which is the Joel Bynin and Frederica Verrell book, Social Movements and Popular Mobilization, Social Mobilization in the, in the Modern Middle East, which is, uh, gives an enormously important background to, to understanding how these events could possibly have unfolded in the way they did. I mean, if you look at the, the Filiou book, he, he makes a number of very important points. Uh, he tells us that these uprisings are a tremendous blow to Salafi Islam and Al-Qaeda types of uh, Islamist politics. It's a point that Fawaz Gerges has underlined also in his work. 
he tells us uh, that, that the role of social media, social networks, was enormously important, but he doesn't exaggerate it to, uh, uh, to turn these into Facebook revolutions. Uh, he, he, he makes a good argument that it's authoritarian regimes that promise chaos in the region, not uh, democracy. And he uh, is useful on uh, condemning the nugatory and unwarranted role that alarmism about Islamist politics in the West has played. Uh, and, and of course, and, and some of this stuff is underlined in the Trip uh, volume, and, and also uh, Trip makes this uh, very important point uh, and develops this theme of the, perf the performativity of mass protest in, in its role in contesting the central spaces of uh, of that the, the regime uses to demonstrate its version of power, order, and hierarchy, and how mass protest performs uh, an inversion of that order, and how that's of, uh, of fundamental importance in how uh, uprisings and, and revolutionary process unfolds. Um, Galel Amin underlines uh, how Egypt surprised itself how this thesis that why don't Egyptians revolt, which is, I mean, there's a book by Ala El Aswani, it's called La Yathawarun Il Masriun. Why don't they revolt? Uh, well, it turns out they weren't so apathetic after all. Uh, and Galal Amin and others have embraced that idea uh, 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 with, with a vengeance. And of course, they've underlined the leaderlessness of these movements with their horizontal forms of organizing and their non-vanguardist uh, or not less than uh, ideological uh, postures. So what I, the point I want to make, because there's a lot more literature that's really useful that comes from the early 2000s as well, especially those people, I think, especially people who've been studying everyday forms of resistance, because it's not that now we switch from the study of everyday forms of resistance, you know, foot dragging, pilfering, lying, dissimulation, arson. We don't want to switch, you know, it would be foolish, I think, as scholars, if we went straight to thinking, no, no, now we have to study mass protest all of a sudden, and we're not interested in what people do when they engage in more, less visible forms of protest. No, because there's a connection, there's a serious connection between, if you read Salwa Ismail's ethnography of the everyday state in the popular quarters, especially if you read it in the light of these mass protests, you can see where a lot of this might be coming from. And I, I found that pretty illuminating. Uh, so there's a, a rough, but, but there are four reasons why th there's reasons to be optimistic about this scholarship. And, it, and, it's, and it's not the same, of course, as some of the punditry we see in, in the press, uh, although some of it's useful. Four reasons. The first is that it rejects the kind of hoary uh, essentialism and arrogance of uh, neo-Orientalism, which sees in these uprisings only chaos and Islamic fundamentalism. That's number one. Number two, it uh, doesn't have much time for the complacent, uh, Eurocentric and elitist position that says, oh gosh, finally those Arabs have stood up and become modern like the rest of us as if the readers of the Daily Telegraph or the New York Times knew more about protesting under fire on the streets than the populations of the Middle East. Third, this, these analyses are promising because then they're not in the old T 
teleological, socio-economic, deterministic, and too materialist mold of some of the orthodox Marxist scholarship of capitalism, which only sees material contradictions and the rise of the working class. And third, I think, and fourth, they're promising because they uh, don't spend, they, they don't fall into the excessive anti-politics and culturalism of some of the postmodern scholarship, which, uh, with its obsession with blurring boundaries, uh, multiplicity, discourse analysis, hermeneutic circles, ghostly subalterns, and the like, as you might say, wouldn't know a popular, imaginative, and creative protest like the one we just saw on the television, on, on the YouTube that happened in Harmer, wouldn't know that if it hit them in the face. I mean, it's a slightly polemical way of putting it. But uh, the point, I think some of this scholarship doesn't necessarily subscribe to those forms. So, but this gives me my agenda for the post-colonial history from below, which is post-colonial because it uh, rejects modernism and orientalism. It's from below because, it, uh, <clears throat> because it's rejection of the anti-politics of, of, and culturalism of postmodernism. But, but to be very schematic, I mean, I'm thinking uh, this kind of historiography asserts that there are such things as flesh and blood interpretive subjects, whether poor or not, who have a political imagination, are capable of interpreting their condition, and are at least ready to act in order to change that condition. It, as, it asserts against socioeconomic determinism that says that all change comes from you know, alterations in the means of production or technology and, and the like, or processes of uh, modernization against that form of uh, historical imaginary. It asserts the importance of politics, the political imagination, and culture. It asserts against Orientalist essentialism that culture is creative and it's syncretic, as in the, the position that was taken, not so much in Orientalism, but the position that was taken generally by Edward Said. It seeks to escape the hermeneutic circle, the, 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 the moment where historians say we can only interpret an interpretation. It's, uh, you know, there's a recent book on, um, it's uh, called The Return of the Gallon King on uh, the Burmese uprisings of the 1930s. And it's, uh, it's, it's a bit unfortunate because, I mean, it's a wonderful book, incredibly accomplished, but all it does is interpret a set of interpretations. It never really tells you what happened in those uprisings uh, in 1930 in Burma. But if you assert the existence of power relations, forms of violence, violence, not just performative violence, but actual violence uh, and, and inequality. And, and, and a couple more points. Uh, it's interested, this kind of history, in the aggregative dynamics of the social formation as a whole. It's what Jeff Ely calls for at the end of his review of historiography, uh, A Crooked Line, where we have to pay attention to uh, aggregative dynamics. And my own concept for that is a notion uh, of a hegemonic contestation. And it's a response to the, some of the unremitting forms of micrology and mul multiplicity, the history of the fragment that one finds in, uh, in uh, 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 some of the you know, very you know, important, useful cultural history that we've seen. So anyway, that's the agenda I'm pushing. I'm pushing and uh, 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 and you know those are some of my, of my assumptions that, that in in terms of moving in terms of where to go in the historiography. But if you take these lenses, actually the history and this is I wanted to say something about the historical context. The history of mass protest in the region is uh, extremely rich. 
and extremely long. And it's not just confined to the labor movement, Islamic movements, nationalist movements, or, or middle class movements. And it didn't begin with the self-immolation of uh, Mohammed Bouazizi on December the 17th, 2010. In fact, as Pio's book tells us, the um, uh, self-immolation's been going on in Tunisia actually for some time. Uh, but the idea is um, to, uh, uh, to speak of, I mean, the subject matter here, when I speak of protest, I'm, talk, I'm thinking of unruly contention, which, and it, it's a definition, I mean, this is a rough definition of what I'm thinking of. Unruly, non-routine, and disruptive mobilization by large numbers of highly motivated persons addressing, or perhaps one might say challenging, but addressing the existing distribution of power and resources. And that kind of definition, there's a tradition of analyzing contentious politics, so Charles Tilley, Tarot, and others, but it's a mixture of that. There's also a book by Peter Leinbaum, Marcus Redeker, called The Many-Headed Hydra, and it's, um, it, 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 there's, there's a, an element of that, uh, of that in, in there too, I think. <clears throat> but, uh, I, I mean, I, I, needed, I felt it was important to give a flavor of this history because uh, otherwise this, as I mentioned, you know, Daily Telegraph view that suddenly th those Arabs have, have, have woken up and, and engaged in courageous collective action and we've never seen that before because it's, it's just uh, a complete violence to a, to a rich history. Uh, and just, uh, this is just to pick a couple of examples. I mean, one is uh, a popular uprising brought down the Ottoman Sultan in 1730. It did the same thing again in 1806. I put some of the authors who have, have written about this usefully in brackets afterwards. And there's a rich tradition of urban protest as well as anti-colonial jihad and protest in the name of custom, justice, and so on in Morocco. Uh, at least Edmund, Edmund Burke, Abdullah Larui have discussed that in the 19th century. There's in Egypt in 1881 to two, uh, Colonel Ahmed Orabi's movement under the banners of patriotism, constitutionalism, drove the Khedive, the then ruler of Egypt, uh, to take refuge in a British frigate off the coast of Alexandria, uh, and uh, precipitated uh, the British invasion and occupation of the country in 1882. In Iran, Janet Afari's work on, the, on how the Shah was forced to sign a constitution in the face of an uprising. In Egypt, the, uh, uh, the uprising of the spring of 1919 and the burning of Cairo in January 1952, both are forms of mass protest that paved the way for significant change. Uh, in the second case, uh, rather like the Wathba in Iraq, defined by Hannah Batato as a mass urban uprising against monarchic rule in 1948, that and the burning of Cairo in 51, they both paved the way in various ways for the coup d'etat of the free officers which followed in, in, in Egypt in July 52 and in Iraq in, 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 in 1958. Hugh Roberts has written a terrific analysis of the Algerian uh, riots of 1988, claiming that they weren't so much bread riots, he relaxes this notion of socio-economic determinism, but these are, this is a whole wave of, of protest in, in the region in the 70s and 80s, partly in response to structural adjustment and other features. Uh, one of the most mass-based uh, revolutions of modern times happened in Iran in 1979, uh, transfiguring the geopolitical and political landscape of the region. Uh, Palestine too, uh, you know, a history of, a long history of protest the Intifada of 1987 to 91 uh, uh, had a major impact on public opinion 
uh, around the world. It shifted the geopolitical position of the United States and Israel. It led to a process of negotiation uh, between the PLO and uh, uh, the United States uh, within a UN framework, which was then extracted and, and went into the Oslo process. So I had this to contrast with the two different kinds of protests, you know, millions occupying a public space and performing a mass rejection of the regime and its symbols, and uh, one person standing up to uh, a tank, of course, the tanks which were never deployed in that way in Egypt in the recent uprising. So there's a history uh, behind uh, these protests. Uh, so and, and what we can expect, I think, taking that history into account, is that we're not going to take the position that says these protests are just bushfires in the landscape, otherwise carved out by powerful elites, i.e. to dismiss the protests completely as a kind of a safety valve, but really the serious business of politics is done by concentrations of institutional power on the one side, or the position that says, well, these mass protests really can, can completely change the world in an unmediated fashion. If we, if we take that history seriously, it seems that mass protest has a role, it has an impact, but it's not an unmediated one, it doesn't happen on its own, and we've seen a wide variety of outcomes from this uh, rich history of protest, from concessions to coup d'etat, to revolutions, to invasions by outside powers, uh, and so on and so forth. And we've already seen uh, some of that varied response to mass protest in the region in 2011. So, um, so and, and really I just have a few, I want to address my questions now. So in that case, what did mass protest do uh, directly? Uh, in Egypt in January and February 2011. What did, it, what did it do indirectly and what didn't it do at all? And then I want to say something about who was involved and whether this was distinctive. So uh, what did it do directly? Well, it's this first point that I think is, is, is made uh, you know, in, in significant detail already uh, by Charles Tripp in that manuscript I mentioned whereby what it did directly was perform the mass rejection by the people. This is in Egypt, by the people, by the Shab. Uh, uh, and remember, that category is a category of authentic peoplehood. It's, it, it means you're not an infiltrator, you're not a spy, you're an Ibn al-Balad, you're a son of the country, you're a, a genuine staunch uh, Egyptian, you're, uh, and you demonstrate as it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm. This is a gloss on the, the one of the main slogans: Nizam, The people want the fall of the regime, or the people demand the fall of the regime, as Ahdaf Swaif translated it, which is the best way because you get the cadence. But that phrase, of course, comes from Tunisia, but it was operative in Egypt. The idea of that the Shab as a as a body are performing in the most uh, uh, regime 
uh, in, in the most symbolic public space in Egypt. I mean, you see this. There's the Egyptian Museum, is the building in orange. You can't see the Mugamma building, which is the, the sort of monument to, to, to Nasserist uh, uh, state building. There's the Ramses Hilton. There's a, you know, this is, I mean, perhaps everybody knows, it's, 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 it's a square where uh, the, the Nizam, the system and the regime in Egypt performs its, its version of, of order and power. And by, if you have something called the Shab, the people, demonstrating a mass rejection of the Nizam. And the Nizam, it means the regime, which is the Mubarak regime. It's defined quite well by Ibahad Kinla, I think, in his book. But it also, Nizam actually could mean, I mean, it means a system. It means a system. It doesn't just mean the Mubarak regime. It could, it, it, it has, it, it, it's quite a, a wide denunciation if you say the people demand the fall of the regime. So, um, if you perform this in enormous numbers, you, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're uh, undermining the symbolic capacity of the regime to impose its form of order on, on the urban space. And that's an important point. It's been made. It will be made. Um, that, and this is something that mass protests did directly. The second point, which um, has been made as well, uh, is this, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, see what happens when you uh, demonstrate it, 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 in, a, in a protest like this when you address the state uh, well we, we have to know something about what people understand by the state and that's partly why this uh, Ismail, Salwa Ismail's book I think is so useful the, the everyday life the book um, on the everyday state in the popular quarters because it's when, what they, under, they don't understand by the state, the people in the popular quarters, uh, 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 an organized monopoly of the legitimate means of coercion which makes binding rules for the population and the territory as a whole. They don't say that. They say, mafish dola, or we live in a, we, they say there's no state, or we live in a state uh, other than the state. Or they say, the state is in broken in pieces. Uh, and, and, and the, so what, what is it that's being shattered then by this demonstration in public space? It's not, it's not the state as a, 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 some, as a power of sovereignty that imposes rules on a population. It's it, because what Salwa Ismail indicates in that book is, what the state is conceived of, apart from something that's broken in pieces, is something that can impose what she calls fear and the culture of fear. And, uh, and it's in the detention cells of the corrupt police stations, in the beatings, in the blood of, of people in the popular quarters. That's what the state imposes. That's what it means to people. And so what they're performing is a rejection of fear and the culture of fear when you defeat the riot police and the forces of the regime under the Ministry of the Interior that are the riot police that are in the square that you're resisting in order to occupy it. Because of course to stay, to occupy that space, to, to be continuously in the space, you have to defeat uh, the forces of the riot police. And when you do that, you indirectly you defeat the regime, but what you defeat is the uh, fear and the culture of fear. I mean, there's an enormous amount of testimony to that effect, how the, the sensation that people had when they realized for the first time that those uh, institutions of coercion could actually be defeated. I mean, this is, has something to do with the uh, intense 
celebrations and, and feelings of empowerment that came out of it. There's another piece of it, uh, which is the point. It's going to be made by Anne Alexander, Alexandra. It's uh, ER, sorry, in a in a forthcoming book, which is an important point, which is that. Uh, the strikes that broke out on from Wednesday the 9th of February in 2011, which is another form of mass protest, uh, were uh, threatening to paralyze the economy, uh, which is not just a sign to the regime that things are entering a difficult situation. It's also a very material form of institutional disruption, which uh, uh, has a direct impact on, 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 on events. And there's another piece, actually, of... Uh, which is more like riot or what one might call direct crowd actions to seize, eliminate or destroy uh, property, uh, persons and goods, which is uh, things like what happened all over the country, although it's not, I uh, don't have a particularly clear line of documentation, but for example in Al-Fayoum, uh, a town south of Cairo, people uh, entered the offices of the electricity company and they destroyed the, what, the fraudulent bills that they had been presented with. So a kind of a direct seizure of, of property, fraudulent forms of documentation, which also played a role in this uh, paralyzing of the sort of institutional operation of the, of the Egyptian economy. So that was going on as well. And, but my, so I'm not saying anything original here, except, except that I think there is something that's been a bit underplayed, which is this fourth point. And I think it's been underplayed partly because of the idea of the performance of Silmia, Silmia, uh, uh, this of peaceful, peaceful. The idea that this—it's very important for the symbolics of these protests that they were peaceful as against the violence of the regime, and that was very important for all sorts of audiences. But there was, there's also, and that might have led to the underplaying of another factor, which is that uh, what happened was these. The, the mass protests were able to massively degrade uh, police capacity by the defensive application of uh, physical force. It's a very material, a very earthy factor that was going on in Egypt between January the 25th and February the 11th, 2011, whereby the, uh, the, a whole series of very physical forms of, uh, of, of, of battle were going on between uh, men and women of the popular quarters and the, the riot police. And that, I would, uh, I mean, have to submit is the only way that they could have continued to occupy the square. Uh, because, um, you know, as an activist said to me in June 2010, he said, uh, okay, uh, it's fair enough, there's two or three hundred of us, we're all educated, we all have our social networks, we go down and we demonstrate in front of the Ministry of the Interior, but then the officer, the Zabit, comes along and he, you know, he picks us up, takes us away like chickens and puts us in his truck and buses us to the outside of Cairo and dumps us there. And uh, this, was the, this is the fate of a protest that isn't a mass protest and that doesn't have a capacity to end up not inside the armored truck but actually to burn it because a great number of armored trucks that were burned, there were a great... and. Uh, there was an ability to cope with tear gas, for example, not just by, um, 
by, I mean, they did their techniques. You develop, you, you wore gloves, not, not just the lemon and the Pepsi, but you had people called Sayadeen, hunters, who stood at the front, they grabbed the tear gas canisters as they landed, and they threw them back into the ranks of the police, which was an enormous uh, uh, physical degradation of the police capacity to operate. So was burning their cars, but it wasn't just the cars, it was also their barracks, the police at Aksam there, which were uh, 80 to 100 of them were burned uh, during uh, the, the days following the 25th of January, which meant, and, and these, and this, you know, on the transcripts of police radios, they, they get into a desperate situation where they, uh, if you're a police officer, not if you're the people, uh, whereby they, they can't even withdraw to their Aksam because the Aksam have been burned. And they, they say, and so there's a physical confrontation that goes on, and perhaps the, and the sort of apogee of it is the burning of the headquarters of the National Democratic Party, which is the main ruling party in Egypt. And if you believe Jason Brownlee's uh, book, it's a really important reason why, how Mubarak was able to sustain his hybrid regime. So this was burnt physically, it was eliminated physically in the confrontation. I mean, this is on late the 28th of January and early 29th of January. So, uh, so anyway, there was a uh, significant physical degradation of the police capacity to, and, and in some ways it was, it was the sine qua non of breaking the culture of fear and of being able to perform a rejection of, of the regime. So you know, it's a point I want to emphasize uh, just because I haven't, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's worth paying some attention to. It doesn't mean the use of force wasn't defensive. And the other, the other thing that was done was in order for the demonstrations to get out of the popular quarters, there were bottlenecks where you have the, uh, the security forces preventing them coming out of the entrances to the popular quarters. Uh, some of the kids got up on the roofs and they threw Molotov cocktails down on the police. It dispersed them and it enabled the crowds to get out. So. Um, these were you know, extraordinary, uh, powerful aspects of a way to degrade you know, this extremely aggressive, uh, corrupt and police force that had been practicing widespread torture in Egypt for, for according to you know, WikiLeaks, the US Department, State Department reports for a number of years. So uh, this is, an, and, and, and the same goes for the ability to defeat the thugs, the Baltagia, when they showed up in Tahrir Square and otherwise. They weren't defeated by, by uh, they were repelled by, by physical force. So, uh, and the important point here is that, I mean, the regime, it only, it has three coercive pillars. One's the army, one's the police, and the other is the security. The police is headed up by Habib Adli in the interior minister. The army's headed by Tantawi and the security headed by Omar Suleiman. And once you've taken out the police, once they've effectively been degraded on Friday the 28th of January, the regime only, it's only left with the army and the security forces. And these are actually, the army has had nothing to do with the day-to-day -day law and order issues or crowd control for, for, for the longest time. So if you're thinking of a regime and how you can continue to survive and control the population, once your police have been eliminated, you're in a very difficult situation. So anyway, these are the, the things that I think taken together, this is what mass protest could do directly. This is why it's a serious, powerful aspect of, in this situation in Egypt, as it was. The thing is, so what did it do indirectly? Meaning, I think it had an effect, but it didn't, it, it wasn't the only decisive factor. 
And uh, I mean, seeing as we're talking about the police, I'll mention that the fact that on the 28th of January in the afternoon, the the some time at some point the order came. I don't know. Maybe someone here knows who it was from, but I suspect it was from Adley. But I don't think we know. It could have been from Mubarak. But the idea was that the police were to be withdrawn. Not just the riot police, but all the police of Egypt were to be withdrawn. The, the traffic cops, everybody was to come, was to be sent back to barracks, sent back to the wherever they came from. Uh, so, uh, uh, and this and this this order came from on high. It was only, I mean, it was it was not it was not the direct result of the mass protest. I, I think it had an impact because the police were significantly degraded. But but the idea on the part of the regime was to say you have to stick with us else you're going to have chaos because there's going to be no police to protect you but the thing is this was a colossal blunder by by the regime uh hard, very hard to exaggerate i think the, the extent of that blunder because because i think the only shreds of, of there are two reasons why there are only shreds of legitimacy that mubarak had left one he posed as the sort of stolid guardian of order in a country that cares about order and worries about chaos. It was more, it's Fauda and Fitna, it's probably one of the only things people sort of thought, well, maybe Mubarak does stand for this. Well, he, but people quickly, not only had he withdrawn the police force uh, from the entire country, it was rumored and, and partly known that he'd let, he started to let criminals out of prison. And so this is an astonishing contradiction in terms of the idea of in, suddenly from being a guardian of order, the regime becomes the, the instigator of chaos in the country. So I think there's quite a significant point. Uh, it wasn't caused directly by the mass protest. It was a decision that was taken very quickly in the midst of the mass protest, but it didn't have to go that way, I don't think. But uh, the... Um, and, and, and the other impact of that, which is hugely important, is that the whole population, because they're worried about criminals being let out of prison and the lack of police on the streets, is they organize themselves in popular committees, Ligen and Shabia. Uh, this is everybody now. Everybody. I mean, there were people in Egypt who on the 28th of January were, were just going about their daily business. They weren't in Tahrir and they weren't protesting. But virtually everybody in the country by the end of Friday after the, the police have gone and people are talking about criminals coming to raid their homes get organized in local committees to protect their streets and so on so it helps to create a revolutionary situation in quite a dramatic fashion so that was only that was an indirect result of the protest I would submit the second thing is the neutrality of the army, which is also a indirect result, I think, of the protests. I mean, you could cling to this idea that the army and the people are one hand, and that the army would never have shot on the people. Uh, 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 well, uh, perhaps, but I, 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 th I, I, I think it could have been otherwise. Uh, I mean, at least it's a reasonable counterfactual exercise to imagine a situation uh, we've seen it many times before. It's certainly the situation that Saudi Arabia was urging on Mubarak. It's a situation that happened in Tiananmen Square. We've seen it happen in Syria. We saw it happen in Libya. We saw it, we've seen it happen in Bahrain, where the army shoots on, on the people. There was a plan, according to a student of mine, to, uh, well, I don't know, I can't verify it, to, to do with um, airstrikes and so on on the population, a possibility. But anyway, um, uh, who knows? We don't know. It's, uh, but I think it would be wrong 
to, to, stru to claim that mass protest caused that neutrality directly. I think it has an indirect impact. I think it, the army was worried about divisions in the army if it started to clear the streets or restore law and order, as it could have been phrased, rather than shooting on innocent civilians. But um, uh, it, it didn't happen that way. And so, uh, th and there's a question, of course, that we can go into as to why it didn't happen. But I, but I just mean here to say we can't quite claim, I don't think, that mass protests caused that directly, but it did, it did cause it uh, in an indirect uh, fashion. And I think the third thing that, it, that mass protests didn't cause directly uh, was the vacillation of the United States. Because as we know, on the 25th, 6th of January, the United States said, you know, Egypt is stable. There's not an issue in Egypt. And then, but by, after seven days, and it was business as usual for the US to be supporting a corrupt, repressive dictatorship that practiced widespread torture. This is, this is business as usual. But the thing is, after one week, it wasn't doing that because it said, uh, well, uh, that's too blanket a statement, but, but what I mean is there was vacillation because suddenly uh, the United States was speaking about an orderly transition. And what they sort of meant was, we want Omar Suleiman, who's also a repressive, torturous dictator, to take over power in Egypt, but uh, who was then head of security and has a long track record. But they were vacillating on their support for Mubarak and the regime. And uh, I don't think that was, that was an, uh, you know, an indirect result of the mass protest, but not, it can't be completely claimed by them because I think the US could have taken a different stance. I think it could have, like Saudi Arabia, said, uh, you know, there's no question of supporting these, um, these people who are, you know, these, these, um, the, these forces of chaos uh, in, in, in Egypt we have to support. I mean, it's MI6 recommended to David Cameron over Libya. It's better to support the devil you know. Didn't recommend uh, what Cameron did in Libya, which was to push for some kind of UN resolution and then a NATO uh, intervention. Cameron was the one who was pushing for that, as far as we understand. There's a report published in The Guardian that I'm relying on for that, a, a, a research they did. Whereas that wasn't what MI6 recommended, uh, because this better the devil you know logic has lasted, uh, is a very enduring feature of the cynical geopolitics of those relationships. And uh, so there was some vacillation. I think it, the, the mass protests can claim something, but they can't claim the whole, the whole story behind what happened there. So anyway, so these are some of the things the protest did uh, directly, some of the things it did indirectly, but what didn't it do at all? And, uh, and we sort of know what it didn't do at all, which is, which is, which is this, which is what, uh, this is what we saw in Iran on February the 11th, 1979, so exactly 32 years before. We saw, this is a picture of people who are ideologically committed to the radical transformation of Iran. They are defectors from the army or they're intellectuals carrying guns or people and they, are, they launch uh, an armed assault on the Imperial Guard and they take the key levers of state power in Iran. One is the, 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 the radio station, another is the, the Shah's uh, main buildings, palaces, the headquarters of SAVAK, the intelligence services, etc. And that's what happened in Iran on February the 11th, 1979. But in this 
this gentleman in the middle is, is a member of the Imperial Guard. I got this off a, a pro-Imperial uh, Guard website, incidentally, but uh, uh, you know, uh, these are supposed to be you know, savage barbarians, but, um, but you know, that's not the purpose of this uh, analysis. But what they didn't do was to, they didn't seize power. And, and what the, so the mass protests, I mean, didn't throw up a group who, and, and the moment would have been February the 11th. I mean, I, this is counterfactual, but the, that would be the, the moment because Mubarak refused to step down on the evening of February the 10th. On the 11th, you had a million people in the streets of downtown Cairo alone. You had millions of others all over the country up in arms. Had there been a group who were ready to conduct an assault on the, pres on the units of the presidential guard that were outside the state TV and outside the palace, the presidential palace, then you would have seen a different outcome in this uh, uprising because a group uh, with organization, leadership, use of force and so on, maybe a program would have uh, seized state power and, and you would have had a different kind of outcome. That, so that, that's the mass protests didn't do that at all. I think it's worth bearing that in mind because at least it gives us the basis for how to explain this overall situation. But um, uh, so these are some of the things that I think protests did, didn't and, and partly contributed to. So, uh, but this gives us some sort of basis for uh, making some remarks about who was involved and I think I'll, I'll truncate this section a bit. I, I, I just, I, I have really one point to make here, which is that, uh, I mean to put the point very crudely for exaggeration, you have those who want to somewhat overemphasize the role of the Muslim Brotherhood, or even greatly exaggerate it, but in serious analysis, you have this. Another group, they look at the Facebook youth, the educated youth, and they think it was those that made the revolution, the uprising. And then there's another group uh, who, who look at the industrial workers, and they say, well, really, it was those, the decisive intervention of the industrial workers who, who have been protesting in their millions in the 2000s. Uh, who, who started to paralyze the economy and that's what led Mubarak to go, etc. And my, the only point I wanted to make here is because those sorts of interpretations are all very well, but I, I, I mean, the main point, uh, the, 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 the crowds that assembled in these mass protests were uh, people from all walks of life, as far as we know, although, uh, you know, the sociological research uh, hasn't necessarily been done. But it's the groups that are somewhat neglected, I think, in this, these kinds of analyses that I just mentioned, are the youth from the popular quarters, people who've been working in the informal sector, return migrants, petty service workers, retailers, self-employed, crafts workers. They're the kinds of people who, in fact, appear in, these eth in the ethnographies of an Asif Bayat or Salwa Ismail, or my book, The Invisible Cage, or Farha Renam's book, Remaking Cairo, or um, um, on and on, actually, there's a whole list. And um, uh, it's, there's a, and I want to come back to this guy. There's someone that Salwa Ismail interviewed in, in the mid-2000s who was a, a man of humble origins from Bula, which is a popular neighborhood in Cairo. And he said uh, to Salwa Ismail, he said, um, uh, he's, he, they were obviously discussing um, the question of how do you resist when the police... Uh, this is a man who was arrested for looking at a police officer. 
in his popular quarter. He looked, he looked at him, I think, twice. He held his gaze. And what he should have done is lowered his gaze. So he was arrested, beaten, falsely charged. And anyway, he said, he said sure, we'll... Um, it's called Ayman. He said, uh, he said, yeah, one day, like, like Arabi, we will, uh, there'll be a revolution in Egypt. We will rise up. But, he said, we need a Salah al-Din we need uh, to lead us. We need a, a leader to lead us uh, and to show the way or something. So I'll come back to this, this man. But there are, there's, there are ethnographies of these, of these characters. And the thing is that they weren't engaging in uh, very conventional or very well-known forms of collective action in the 2000s, except there's some stuff uh, on how they were involved in fights with police, they were involved in uh, small-scale invasions of both uh, companies and police stations, especially over issues of, of thuggery uh, by the police. And then, you know, Ray Bush has studied some of this, actually, for Egypt. And, uh, and these are people who, in their everyday practice, had uh, skills of burning things, of physical strength, and, and so on and so forth. So... Um, but, but I think that these sorts of groups have been, uh, you know, they can often get, get left out because they're not part of any particular great of those modernist emancipatory stories of either the middle class or the, 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 the working class or indeed the, the bugbear of, of, uh, of, of many the Islamists or the, the, the idea of salvation through political Islam. So... Um, uh, and, and, you know, we know that industrial work is a very diverse group. Uh, I mean, the, the, the ethnography by Dina uh, Makram Obeid, who's doing a PhD at LSE, shows that, I mean, uh, the, the, there's a factory in Helwan with a very tradition of labor protest. They weren't particularly interested in this uprising. They, they were talking about technicians with permanent jobs who had some status. They're now downwardly mobile. You know, these things are complicated. There are also... People who, who, who speak rather in an undifferentiated way about the working class, some of these are, are, are really, you know, they're, they're pub, minor public servants who are, who are losing benefits status, fighting inflation, housing, and so on. Teachers who go on strike. I mean, if we just assimilate them to the category of the industrial working class, well, we're doing a, something of an injustice to that, a violence to that, to that category. So... Um, uh, in many ways, uh, if you look at the ethnographies of people from the popular quarters, if you look at Julia Eliashar's book, The Markets of Dispossession, about artisans, craft workers, and others, and how this idea of the market uh, was in fact operating as a form of dispossession in their, in, uh, and, and how the state uh, has moved from a, a kind of corporatism to a, a kind of neoliberal securitized form, you see that, that a seething uh, uh, story of fury, humiliation, uh, but powerlessness in some respects in, 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 in trying to get change among these these sorts of groups, and um, and I suppose you know so this is how I what I the, one of the main points I wanted to make about the the Tunisian wind this sort of border crossing effect you know what role did it really play and my main argument here is that it mobilised these people who who hadn't been mobilised in in public contentious politics uh, very much in the 2000s and because what because um, and this is a hypothesis it's not a, it's not it needs a lot more research 
But what, what the thing about Mohammed Bouazizi, I mean, everybody appropriates what he means, the man who burnt himself in different ways. If you remember, among the educated youth after his self-immolation in January 2011 in Egypt, people were circulating a, um, a clip from Richard Linklater's The Waking Life, which is a philosophical film which shows a young, hip, educated um, American uh, burning himself in order to make his lack of voice be heard. And uh, it's something that was, it made a lot of sense to, to, to one group in Egypt. But uh, that clip wasn't being circulated by the people from the popular quarters, partly because even though, you know, some of the, the, the Facebook pages attract a large, you know, tens of thousands, 70,000, 100,000, that's still not a million or two million who are actually involved in these protests. And uh, in those quarters, what did they think of Bouazizi, who uh, burned himself in, in desperation uh, and as a political statement because he did it in front of the governorate in provincial Tunisia. Well, he, was, he wasn't an educated man. He had been forced to drop out of school. He was suffering from humiliation and police brutality. He was from the provinces. He was from humble origins. He was a self-employed petty vendor who was trying to get by and trying to desperately to provide for a family. And his story... It had, this story suddenly becomes uh, uh, part of uh, a wave of protest that leads to the toppling of Ben Ali on February the 14th. So from the most isolated struggle, uh, the, the, the story that's perhaps the least recognized, uh, suddenly became a, 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 a recognized in the most public and demonstrative way. And, uh, and this resonated with ordinary people who were in you know, roughly similar kinds of, of situ sociological situations uh, in Egypt and, and elsewhere. And I think that's one feature of the, the Tunisian wind, anyway, that partly accounts for that mobilization. Why is it? What that segment of the crowd, not, not, I'm not trying to say they, they played a decisive role or anything, but just a, a segment of the crowd. How did they get mobilized? Why was the Tunisian example inspiring? And I, and, and, I, and I suppose I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, it is, I mean you, it's funny because one can make an enormous amount of the Tunisian case and one, or one can think in a slightly different way. And uh, because, but it seems impossible to account for the timing of the uprising in Egypt without thinking of Tunisia. It seems impossible because, uh, I mean, in early January in Egypt, there'd just been this bombing of the church in Alexandria. There was all sorts of ideas, but you know, a new kind of sectarianism. This is something that's, that Mubarak stood to gain from. Suddenly, uh, they're, 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 suddenly, there's a popular uprising on January the 25th. Uh, and what, I mean, concretely, what did the Tunisian example provide? It provided first a model, a possibility. Especially, don't forget this idea that mass protest could lead to the toppling of a dictator. Because part of the reason why people don't join mass protests is because why would they assume they would lead to the toppling of a dictator? It, uh, it, 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 you know, there's no necessary reason why that might happen in 2011, especially because remember that urban police forces are supposed to be technologically equipped to crush popular protests. It's supposed to be, there's no reason why we would assume in advance that you would be able physically to degrade a police force in, in the tooled up 21st century world. But the, but, the, but the message that had been sent partly from Tunisia is that mass protests could topple a dictator. And, uh, and, and so, of course, it gave a possibility to everybody in Egypt. But the thing is that, that a group of educated youth, at least 20, between 20 and 30, 
then drew up a plan to ignite a popular uprising in Egypt. And they are the ones who chose the 25th of January, which was police day in Egypt, which was a very good idea to choose police day because the police brutality was one of the things that was so uh, chafing at uh, popular, in popular opinion in Egypt, which is partly why they celebrate the army because uh, they're not the police. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, but the, so there was an actual a plan that was drawn up for a particular kind of mobilization that would ignite a popular uprising that would arrive in the central points of Cairo uh, and then would, would, would topple the regime. So it was a very ambitious plan, quickly drawn up and, and implemented in a very clever way. But you have to be cautious about over-ascribing too much agency to that plan because there's been plans before for popular uprisings and they don't necessarily work. The even, you know, Sadat was assassinated in 1981 and there was a plan for an uprising, but it didn't work, even though you managed to assassinate the head of state. Similar guerrilla actions in Iran in the early 1970s didn't precipitate a popular uprising. Guerrilla action strikes against the, the regime. So you can't say that just because there was a plan, that's what automatically people followed it. It's, not, it's completely uh, a way of uh, trying to ignore the, the agency from below in that case. But nonetheless, super important, super courageous uh, to, to draw up that plan and try and implement it. So that's another thing that would, could never have happened, I don't think. Uh, it's hard to imagine that happening, at least when it did, if there hadn't been the Tunisian example. But, um, but there are different ways, because you can also see it as... It's interesting, because uh, ideas cross borders. It was an idea. There weren't any guns, resources, or logistics. I mean, a few ideas about how you face up to police, but it wasn't like the coup d'etat in Yemen in 1962 that then Yemen, North Yemen, then formed an organizational base for the armed struggle in South Yemen. Uh, it wasn't on and on and on. But that kind of border crossing didn't take place uh, in the Arab world in, and hasn't yet really significantly taken place. Material, military, logistical support. I mean, we've seen the Arab League yesterday. Uh, the emergency meeting is to be held when? Next Saturday. And, you know, it, there's a massacre in, in Syria. Every day there's a massacre. And uh, so, you know, it's slow. Uh, it, it's not that there's a systematic uh, attempt to, to materially assist uh, struggling populations. So it's interesting, this question of border crossing. It's, 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 when you identify with a group that's having common problems, they're Arabs, they come from Tunisia, they overthrew their dictator, we can do it too. It's not the same, of course, as saying we want a united Arab state or we want to have Arab integration doesn't mean that and 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 actually these uprisings are occurring I think within a, a national uh, uh, state arena of hegemonic contestation in spite of some of the technologies that are, that are making the political imagination cross borders it's um, surprising I think how important and potent that the national arena is but anyway we can discuss that but uh, it's getting a bit late, but what's distinctive about these uh, protests? I mean, on the one side, uh, and this is where I throw in this idea about hegemony because uh, it's how I can get to the aggregate dynamics. For me, it explains a lot. But, uh, you know, we, it's fairly well established from all this scholarship that these are regimes that have domination, but they don't have legitimacy. But both terms are important. They have enormous coercive resources, but they don't, at least 
uh, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya. I mean, one can't be completely undifferentiated about it, but they don't, at, at times of grinding poverty, downward mobility, and on and on and on from all these studies, have uh, significant legitimacy. So, but what's distinctive, that's not what's distinctive, because this is the Shah of Iran, and likewise, but the Shah of Iran actually in 1905 had neither domination, well really he didn't have domination, is what he didn't have, because he didn't have a centralized, he didn't have a police or an army. In fact, remember that this is a, it's a new situation historically. England didn't have a police force in, uh, before 1829. And, uh, you know, radicals like William Cobbett were, thought it was a frightful thing to have a police force. So, I mean, this idea of, uh, you know, the, I mean, both terms are important. But, um, but what's distinctive is that, it, is, 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 is that they don't have this. They don't, the alternate, the movement, the uprising, doesn't have, I mean, now I'm being very telegraphic, but it doesn't have... Um, a developed organization, leadership, an ideological program, or an alternative principle capable of coming to universality in the social formation as a whole. It doesn't have that uh, in the same way that we saw in Iran in 1979. It's much more like the, the bread riots of 77 and, and 1988 in that regard. So uh, I, I, I wish I could develop that point, but I'll, I'll just, uh, but I shouldn't because I've got to get finished. But, um, but the point is, uh, is that a curse or a blessing? And that's, uh, that, and that's a real question. Because, I mean, the curse argument would say, look, it's all very well to have an uprising, but these kind, and, and you know, Facebook and all this, but these, and horizontal organizing and leaderlessness and a lack of an ideology, but when you face the concentrations of institutional power, you, 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 it's simply not going to be serious in the words of one former intelligence officer in Egypt. And, and so, um, uh, and actually there's a, there's a great book just come out by Stephen Hansen called Post-Imperial Democracies. And it, and it tries to make an argument for the importance of ideology in, uh, in, in political transformation. And it, it's useful, I recommend it, but, it, but the idea he gets from Weber, because he, he speaks of ideas can operate as the switchmen of history, like railway switchmen, where they can they can, at times of great chaos and social instability, ideas can change the, the, the direction of, uh, of, of political life. But I, I won't develop that point. But that's an argument that this is a curse, that it, there isn't an alternative hegemony waiting in the wings. But you might look at this picture and say, well, it's not such a curse. I mean, the 20th century has been full of people who thought they knew how to change the world, you know, from Trotsky to Khomeini to... Uh, to uh, the people who, who, who carpet-bombed Laos or Vietnam. And uh, it's, uh, you might say, well, no, it's, it's a virtue not to have uh, a special... I mean, how can you have such a program anyway under these conditions? One has to think, you know, the movement itself is the message. It's registering a reaction appropriate for the moment. Well, it's, I can't resolve this issue. I mean, I think that... I, I, what I wanted to suggest is... I'm not sure that one actually has to choose in the way this, because, and you know that there are people, I mean, in, in, in Alexandria, a guy called Abdul uh, Ragal, who, you know, in heart and negri fashion says, you know, we have a new, this is a, we are a biopolitical multitude. We, we're giving up on the old ideas of political sovereignty. This is a guy who organized protests in Alexandria, and we, we don't believe in that traditional mode of party politics state power and we're doing something new uh, and, and that's what, 
And so this is an argument, as it were, to say it's a virtue that we don't have those 20th century programs to, to change the world. So anyway, I, I think it's not a curse or a blessing. I think we have to think uh, what, uh, that we have to understand that this is what's going on. It's, you can't change the fact that it's a movement without an alternative right now. And then one has to work with that and see what happens. But um, it is a question of how to make that situation productive. And I think probably it's a bit uh, much for me to solve that here. But so, anyway, those questions that I posed at the beginning, what impact did the, pro the protests have? I'm not going to go back over them because I think, I think I've repeated them enough times. Um, but what, um, who was involved, and I, and I made my points about <coughs> the popular quarters, how do we understand that overall? Well, the overall context I understand in terms of domination without hegemony on the one side, but also movements without a developed alternative hegemony. And in this context, mass protest is a symptom, a result, and a cause in a context that doesn't just belong in the Arab world, it belongs all over the world, actually. And maybe that's what makes it interesting, is that there's a, and this is maybe why the protests <laughs> have spread and why Tahrir has become an icon in London, Nashville, New York, Iceland, uh, Wisconsin, Madrid, and so on, because uh, there's a crisis, actually, uh, in, in the financial architecture, in the language of the market, in the eviscerated <laughs> forms of politics. It's not just an, a problem in the Arab world. And maybe that's where, if this is a struggle for a new kind of global politics, a struggle for politics itself, the possibility of politics, then maybe that, that's a kind of a common ground that could uh, move things forward. Thank you. Thank you, John, uh, for really a fascinating lecture. I think you have given us uh, much food for thought. The only thing is we have 25 minutes, that much time. So we'll take a few rounds of questions, four at a time. Please, let's be as concise as possible. What do you think of the argument um, during the revolution in Egypt that says that the army saw that uh, Mubarak was uh, past his sell-by date and that they did not get involved and their intention was simply to have a military dictatorship. Thank you. All right. Uh, hi, Javier Botella from NSC. Thanks very much for your presentation. Uh, I'd like you explore the, the who, the how, the why. And I'd like to explore your, I like your interpretation of, of the word and why hasn't those movements actually moved further south in Africa specifically? We have one question here, please. Why hasn't it happened in Africa? Did you say? Right. Hello, uh, thank you very much. Um, you've talked extensively about revolutionary mass mobilization. What about counter-revolutionary mass mobilization? Uh, such as uh, the one that perhaps took place in Bahrain and maybe other countries that I don't know enough about. Uh, how did that, independent of state action, uh, influence or, or not influence the outcome uh, or the outcomes of uprising? So, Charles, could you please? Thanks. I hope your explanation of, in a sense, the, the shape of the uprising took the shape of the networks, the associations that, that took part in it was a very convincing one. 
And I suppose that goes back to your question of organisation. So precisely because they did rely on their own forms of organisation, association, things that made sense to them, it also had an effect on the regime. But what one has to think about is there are other forms of organisation around in Egypt. And it's the question of why were those forms of networking, horizontal um, association uh, of the workplace or whatever, so effective against the curious constellation that you described in Mubarak, but are proving to be less effective against the army. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Well, with the last question first, I mean, um, I suppose, you know, I have a, a fairly pessimistic answer to that, but I think it's tough because it does follow from my premises, which is that um, the army is, has an enormous amount of popularity in Egypt, among, especially among these people that I'm talking about, the popular men, men and women from the popular quarters. And a, a huge reserve of popularity. There are brothers, there are fathers, we trust them, they're patriotic, uh, and it's, um, I mean, there's celebrations when the army arrive, not among so much the educated activists, but among the people. The, the celebrations when they arrived, they, they erupted in celebration as the tanks hit the streets. I mean, how does that happen when, I mean, how, most people are like, well, what are the army going to do right now? Well, not most people. You know, a lot of the people on the streets knew. I mean, I, I thought to myself, it's strategic. They're very clever. If you celebrate the arrival of the army, they're less likely to shoot on you. Yeah. Very clever. <laughs> I was super impressed. But I, I, from what I understand more recently, that isn't, it wasn't strategic. It's that they didn't believe the army was going to shoot on them. And uh, so, so to me, it's a question of the, the more optimistic thing is there has to be, people have to think, well, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces are a problem, but the army itself is still guarding the nation's honor. And I don't see how, in terms of getting a mass protest against the army as a whole, it seems very difficult. So. In terms of um, that question uh, of why, uh, since this, now it looks like a, a junta that's taken power, why has it been less effective in, in, in delivering? I mean, I suppose, in answer to your other question, why horizontal forms of organizing and so on? I suppose I think it's because I'm more, I'm, I, my analysis is maybe biased towards this idea of motivation. Uh, what motivates people to seize hold of whatever organizational forms exist? Because the thing is that Facebook is not a revolutionary tool inherently by any shape or form. It's just, uh, an, an, uh, it was suddenly appropriated by quite a small number of extremely courageous motivated people to do things that were political and we know who they are and, and this is they suddenly decided to do it instead of doing what most people do most of the time on Facebook which has got nothing to do with politics and so um, I think people seized I mean it's not an original point it's the kind of thing that Tilly says in the revised social movements theory dynamics of contention people seize sites of communication and resource mobilization in and, and make them political uh, and it's quite dramatic how that can happen and it, but it isn't inherent in the structure uh, that's one thing. Another thing is um, the remember that the that, I mean, if you make a distinction between rhizomic organizing, which is network, and, and arboreal organizing, which is based on hierarchy and uh, command, the, the systems of hierarchy and command, the, the official trade unions, the official political parties, 
they weren't they were completely discredited so they weren't going to be the channels that people use and and so that's another reason why horizontal organizing was, was something that, that mattered in the case of um, this was it that there was to somehow a preordained military dictatorship from the start um, and that this was already evident to the sort of high command uh, the moment they took power on February the 11th well I, I don't really think so just because um, uh, I mean the situation was somewhat confused I mean it really wasn't clear to uh, to the military what they could achieve and what they couldn't achieve and uh, and I think it's still the case that they know they can't sacrifice their popularity I mean it might be hard for them to sacrifice their popularity given that they're popular but they know that they can't and that's significant so um, but uh, but sure, the army has vested interests. The army gets two billion, uh, one point two billion dollars a year from the United States. It has clubs, it has hospitals, it has uh, dent-free dentistry, it has perks and privileges. Uh, it's going to protect those privileges. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it happened to me. It was on about February the twelfth. I was told by a military officer, and what of You know, standing is forbidden. <laughs> and it was a rather a sobering moment. Standing was forbidden. This was in a public space. Uh, so sure, the army, um, well, you know, who knows? I think the question is, how can pressure be applied on the army? They, I think they will try and follow their strategic interests, uh, which, uh, yeah, I'm not very optimistic about. So the question of the where of protest. Well, it's very interesting because, um, as Filiu points out in his book, it, there's different patterns of protest in Tunisia, the protest starts in the provinces, uh, among these uh, these towns where there's unemployment and people who. And the way the protest begins is there's a protest about the way Bouazizi is treated. The police are very brutal, and then it escalates. There are funerals. The people in funerals get killed, and it widens and widens and widens, and it reaches the capital. And in some ways, you can overdraw the contrast. It happened the other way round in Egypt, where. Uh, uh, you know, there was a Tahrir effect, and that, uh, I mean, you shouldn't exaggerate that because Suez and Alexandria are really important. But, uh, but in Syria, too, it's, uh, as you say, the, uh, someone who mentioned the counter revolutionary mass mobilization, we see some of that in, the, in, in downtown Damascus and in Aleppo, where people demonstrate their love for Bashar al Assad. Whereas, as we see from uh, that, that film clip is, is, is an, that I played at the beginning. It's someone called Ibrahim Kashush who, who recorded it. Courageous, creative, a protest, very daring to sing that song. He was murdered brutally by the regime about four days later, and he had his vocal cords ripped out. I'm sorry to give you the gory details. But, and so then his song got more popular afterwards, and that's partly why I played it today, because he was a martyr to that creative, daring, courageous, empowered act. But, uh, but that's the thing, that's the thing, that if you kill, I mean, that's what the interesting thing about repression, sometimes it sends people in fear to their homes, and other times it widens the scope of protest. And uh, certainly those, uh, those regimes don't necessarily uh, have a, pr a full control over that, and that also applies to the military in Egypt. Why hasn't these protests, I mean, if you mean in Algeria and Morocco, no, I have to pass on that because I, I, don't, I haven't properly analysed it. But, uh, and, and the rest of Africa, I have to pass on that question as well. Katarina, please. 
um, there were lots of uh, easy uh, assertions as the uprisings were unfolding about democracy being the objective uh, of these uprisings. And I think that your uh, analysis of the role of the army in Egypt throws up lots of interesting questions about this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm afraid there's no politically correct way of putting this, but um, it seems to me that in Tunisia, um, the, there is such a, a genuine uh, desire, um, but in Egypt, what we see, as you've just described, is um, a respect of the army that is very reminiscent of the uh, way the Turkish army used to be looked at. <coughs> what does this mean about the objectives of, of the uprising, and how will it uh, pan out in the future? Well, I mean, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, please. not being, uh, they're not directed against the state because you define the state in conventional terms as being the force in society that has a monopoly over the legitimate use of force inside the organs of the state, the army, police, security forces and then your analysis focused a lot on the way the protesters targeted the police and the central institutions of the police so surely that is direct action against the state so I just wondered if you could um, Roger, do you have a question? No. <laughs> one more question, one last question. Oh. Any of my students? <laughs> All right. Can I, can I ask a second? Well, let, let, let them answer and hopefully this Yeah, okay, I'll try. Yeah, thanks again. Really good questions. I mean, as for the, so, as for the objectives of the uprising, well, as you say, yes, I mean, I think... Uh, what I mean by that it doesn't have a developed organization, leadership, uh, an ideology, uh, I, 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 what I mean by that is that uh, not only does it not have a Khomeini, uh, who's uh, you know, on the Islamist side, nor does it have, I mean, actually, they, as, you, as I think that you're pointing to, the, the idea of democracy as a political project, it, it, there is a reticence. Because, because of the way the term is so degraded. And uh, you know who wants to copy the, the proclaimed democracy of Hosni Mubarak, of Israel, of the United States? I mean, it's, it's such a degraded term that there is a reticence about that. There's also, uh, certainly in terms of, say, socialism, there's not a, there's not a you know, there's, there's social justice, but there's not a thoroughgoing uh, wide, you know, wide movement for the seizure, proletarian seizure of the means of production. 
There's also not, interestingly, a kind of hyper-nationalist, anti-imperialist, we're going to invade neighboring countries uh, type of ethos either. And not only that, there's not a charismatic leader among the military who, who have domination. They don't have any charisma. Uh, this is a point that one of my PhD students, Ali Amasalam, keeps making to me. They, don't, they can't even speak in front of the population in a way that's persuasive or articulate. You know, and, we don't, and of course, you, one can celebrate that. They don't have a NASA who can convert, who can take their project of domination to can build up a form of hegemony and consent and compromise around their project. So this is partly what I mean about a situation which is not just in Egypt or the Arab world, it's global, about a lack of alternative hegemony to attach to these movements. So I think we have to be pretty clear-minded about that and, and say that yes, it, it, it means that nothing is pre-decided uh, pre, uh, on where this thing is going. It's what Gramsci called, because Gramsci has an analysis of what does it mean to speak of domination without hegemony or alternative hegemony. He says it's a time of morbid symptoms. Well, I don't think it's that bad, because the symptoms are a lot less morbid than they were a year ago. In fact, it's you know, there's all sorts of reasons to have hope. But uh, I think it depends. Uh, what this gentleman said, you know, what can LSE do? It's a good question. What can the world do to push this 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 uprising in in a in a in a direction that could simply be a struggle for the very possibility of politics having a meaningful political field because that doesn't exist in in the Arab world and, and it increasingly doesn't exist in the rest of the world. So, but who knows what direction it wants to go in? Uh, but that's that's just you know. But I think that's this is how often how history is. It's there's an indeterminacy. It can't uh, we can't decide that in advance. And, uh, but, uh, but at least there's an optimistic aspect there, which is that the army is not charismatic, and it does not speak in a way that uh, can win the allegiance of the people. And remember, it hasn't done anything in terms of make, taking initiatives. Remember what NASA did is he completely transformed the socio-economic landscape, I mean, I'm perhaps slightly exaggerating, of Egypt. But people really identified with the NASAist project for its social and economic uh, gains that it produced. And if the military does nothing, neither society or economy or political freedom or, uh, you know, jingoistic nationalism or even a good kind of nationalism, then oh, maybe its days are numbered. Uh, I mean, it's not only the proverbial wisdom of the popular quarters. I mean, if the corrupt police come back, uh, what, there's no reason why we wouldn't see a return to what we've just seen, especially with a highly mobilized population. It's what people have told me on the street when I say, well, um, you know, don't, you know, I mean, this, I had this from someone who I thought must be a Salafi because he said, I don't believe in political parties or democracy. And, and then, then he proceeded to give a very ecumenical, tolerant vision of, of Islam, Christianity, and so on. But then he said, I said, what about if, if the army just seized power? And he said, well, then we'll have another uprising. And, uh, and of course, don't let this gentleman speak for that. What can LSE do? Well, as we know, I mean, it's an interesting question because the, the, we're all involved. I mean, remember the French foreign minister who had to resign because she had flown on Ben Ali's jet? Well, we also know the director of LSE had to resign because of the... It, 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 so these mass protests have indirect echoes all over the world. The, the, I, I mean, LSE can also make a contribution which is, which is to try to understand what's going on I mean, that's another, uh, you know, academic project which uh, can, can, can also uh, take place. But yeah, I think it's a good question. 
As for um, <laughs> good. <laughs> take up with the with the management <laughs> so but let me all right thank you we got the point cheers let me answer this thing about the state yeah no i didn't mean to say i was just you know trying to say what i mean this this i wasn't saying that the press didn't target the state i was saying what did mass protest do directly it managed to put a massive dent in the culture of, of fear and the culture of fear, which is what this state in bits and pieces represents to most people in Egypt. I mean, that was the, the point. Now, I mean, absolutely sure, it knocks out one of the coercive... I mean, the state, I mean, we're talking about, I think, a regime, which is the linchpin of which is Mubarak. He's trying to create a succession to his son, Gamal, and then he has various resources at his disposal and personnel agencies one of them the police was knocked out uh, by these protests so that that was my, my point for sure it's a, it's a direct uh, uh, attack on on the regime to do something like that the last intervention for katarina well what about people who haven't spoken yes yeah, absolutely yeah. sorry i didn't see you well, thank you. Quick question. What about the comparison that uh, we hear between the Arab revolutions and uh, the revolutions in Europe, 1989? And um, one of the indirect, uh, what do you think about the, you mentioned indirectly what these protests cause, but does it have any impact to, with accelerating <laughs> the possibility of, pot of potential of attacking Iran as indirect? Well, I'm afraid, I think, it, it, I, I mean, how do we interpret the Israeli warmongering that I mentioned? Because it's really serious right now. The, the, the cabinet is virtually on the, on the edge of agreeing that, that they've got to attack Iran and its nuclear capacity, even though there is significant divisions in the Israeli security establishment because some think that they simply don't have the capacity to, to launch such an attack. Well, I, I, I interpret this, this is in this context, it's in the context of, of a country trying to seize the initiative, or let's say, you know, the most right-wing, craven, and 
you know, racist government in Israel's history trying to seize the initiative in a context of a, a security environment that it believes is threatening, meaning there might be an outbreak of something like democracy in the Arab world, which is threatening. <laughs> and so how do you roll that back? I mean, the dictators of the region play the sectarian card. Israel plays uh, the, 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 the regional warfare card. These are the ways you destroy popular mobilization. So, uh, sure, I think that's what they're doing. But um, in terms of, uh, what was your first question? The historical comparison with Europe. Uh, oh, yes, 89. Well, I, I mean, uh, the optimist says we hope, hope it'll be better because those Eastern European states became, you know, sites for neoliberal economics and rendition programs. I hope that uh, in the future the Arab world will you know, perhaps uh, develop a different kind of economic trajectory in order to provide uh, you know, social justice. But, uh, but also, more seriously, well, there are some very good studies. I mean, the thing is that there's a study by Mark uh, Bessinger called Nationalist Mobilization in the Former Soviet Union, and it's about the role of, of how nationalism comes to operate in a context of, a, of an empire that's collapsing, and, it, and it maybe it serves this role of, I mean, I haven't thought this through, but of a, of a kind of alternate hegemony in a context where you have a Soviet uh, system of domination, you know, without a good deal of, of hegemony. Although people are revising that picture now, even though it seemed to make sense of those transformations at that time. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, so, of course, the Eastern European 89 gave us this vexed concept of, of civil society in its 1990s manifestation, which we can, we can best do without. So, uh, you know, there are different uh, reactions. I'm sorry, I, I should develop that point if I say it, but I, I can't. I, I think I'll go on for too long. <laughs> but, um, but uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are similar. I mean, there's an inspiring similarity as well, isn't there? Because... It's a possibility when people suddenly stop. I mean, what's inspiring in Egypt is that people are participating in politics and political discussion, you know, like never before. I mean, the country, in, in that sense, it's, you might even be tempted to use the word revolutionary. I mean, the difference between Egypt now, I mean, it's a bit more long term, and, and say the 1990s is, uh, is like night and day in terms at least of the mobilization, debate, activism, the, the desire to participate and, and so on and so forth. Thank you.